Long before the space race of the 1960s, explorers in the 19th century set their sights on being the first to locate the true source of the Nile. Now, with a little help from GPS and inflatable powerboats, a handful of determined adventurers have actually been able to locate the very place where the waters that feed the Nile originate. One of those select few to journey all the way to the headwaters of the Nile is a remarkable British woman named Joanna Lumley. She's been honored with the Order of the British Empire, she's a fellow in the Royal Geographical Society, and she's even considered a national treasure in Nepal for her work on behalf of Gurkha veterans. She also happens to be an accomplished actress with roles in dozens of British TV shows and in the movies. She was one of James Bond's girls and appears in Martin Scorsese's upcoming film The Wolf of Wall Street. But you probably know Joanna Lumley for portraying the beehive-wearing, middle-aged party girl Patsy Stone on the BBC comedy Absolutely Fabulous. She joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to take us up the Nile as seen on public TV in her four-part travel special, Joanna Lumley's Nile. Joanna, thanks for being with us. Honestly, Rick, wasn't that a treat, though, to be allowed to be given a program saying, would you like to follow the Nile? And first of all, the idea was to start at the source of the Nile and go to the Mediterranean. Then we thought it actually would be much more interesting to start at the Mediterranean, where the great river tips itself out, and to follow it creeping, creeping back, the way that over the centuries people have tried to find the source of the Nile by following the Nile and always being grounded. We thought it would be thrilling because, of course, we now do know where the source of the Nile is, kind of. Joanna, how many borders did you cross to go from the mouth of the Nile all the way to Rwanda? Well, when we got into the Sudan and got to Khartoum, we then went up into Ethiopia to bring, as it were, the Blue Nile back down to Khartoum. But thereafter, we wouldn't because it was a very uh, unsettled time in the Sudan at the time and we weren't allowed to go into the interior at all. So we then had to go down to fly down to Uganda and come across north into the Sudan up to Juba to do that journey from there to see the Great Sud. Oh, I noticed that on your map that you went down the Blue Nile and then you cut over skipping a bit of the White Nile and that was because of political instability. Oui, I would say. I love that start in your show when you're with those guys on that rustic boat and then they sort of declare, we've left the Mediterranean and now we're in the Nile. We're in the Nile. And everywhere that that great mighty river flows, it's treated almost as a kind of god. You can understand this because it's running through some very, very barren land, very dry land, and it brings wherever it comes. It brings crops and fresh air and date palms and things. It brings water for the animals. I mean, the Nile's much more than Egypt, but when you think about Egypt, Egypt really is a green ribbon running north and south through the desert. That's uh, what it is. Fed by the Nile. The Nile is just exactly that. And without the water of the Nile, suddenly it just goes straight back to desert again. So in a way, they treat it almost like a kind of god. You know, they revere it. It's actually the world's longest river. How long is the river? 4,021 miles or something like that. And the big issue is, where is actually the source? Where is the source? I was reading about this, and you covered it in your your beautiful uh, TV production, But it is sort of uh, a little bit of discussion. Is it in Rwanda or is it in Burundi? Uh, What is your take on that? How do you describe finding the actual source 4,000 miles from that point where the Nile leaves the Mediterranean? Well, I think that Hanning Speak found it, which was that the river really starts to pour itself out from Lake Victoria. That's where it kind of starts. Now, there are lots of little rivers feeding into Lake Victoria. So the stylish thing to do is to find the longest tributary to Lake Victoria and say that then can be called the Nile. 
But in my heart, even though we went into the Rwanda, we followed the longest one, and and you know we said that's where it is. It's rising in these great mountains in Rwanda. Okay, so so really the Nile. Secretly, I would say it's Victoria. Starts I, at Lake I would Victoria. Say it's Lake Victoria. But I think it does. All the little discussions and the competitions and so on is a matter of mm. tracking all these little feeder rivers that come into this huge lake between Uganda and Tanzania, and then yes. finding the longest tributary, and that would be technically the source of the Nile. Kind of technically, but then you know part of you would say, well, if it's tipping in to this enormous lake, how can you be sure it's tipping out the other side? <laughs> right. It, well, it might be. <laughs> and the odd thing is it flows north. Not many north. rivers flow north, do they? No, and certainly not many mighty rivers. Most of them come down, you know, the Mississippian things, they kind of flow south. And when we look at maps, because we're, well, mad, we look at them and imagine the north is the top, as it were, right. and the south is the bottom. And so you'd <laughs> think that gravity, as it were, would kind of pull the water downwards. But anyway, this enormous, mighty river, debatably, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it is the longest river in the world, flows from south to north, and it goes through five immense African countries. Every single one as different as can be, with all their own cultures and histories and climates and peoples. Now, my image, Joanna, is the Nile in Egypt, but when you look at the map, mm. that's just the, the final lap, really. That's just the last bit. In Egypt, it's, it's a ribbon going through the desert. Would you say it's generally a ribbon going through the desert, or is it in lush no. territory otherwise? No, the Sudan, it is a ribbon flowing through the desert of the desert. It's the back mm. of beyond. It's the Nubian desert. It's right. ancient, ancient, and really, really sort of sparse and stony and looks like the side of the moon in most of the places. Mm. But then you come into Uganda, where it's as lush and fertile as you can imagine, filled with hippos and great crocodiles and enormous birds, shoebills and... I mean, everything beauteous, like, almost like the Garden of Eden. Yeah. And Rwanda, where it's coming down from the high mountains, we were at about, oh, I don't know, 8,000 feet when we found our little source, the tributary into Lake Victoria. It comes from the most complex series of climates. But the ones we think of, really, is the mighty Nile traveling through deserts, really the deserts of Sudan and Egypt. Joanna, you know, the Nile has two branches, and they come together at Khartoum, the capital of the Sudan, Tell us what the difference between the White Nile is and the Blue Nile. The Blue Nile rises in Ethiopia. It comes through very, very steep gorges. It's virtually unnavigable. People have tried. Many people have died in the attempt. It's a very, very rushing and steep and rocky river, hurtling. It brings the strength into the Nile. The White Nile, so-called, which is the lower part of the Nile, before they join together the Blue and the White and then become the Nile, the White Nile rises sort of in Lake Victoria, debatably in the hills around there. But then it makes its tranquil, placid way down a few cataracts and waterfalls, but largely moving as a broad and uncomplicated navigable river, mm -hmm. whereas the Blue Nile comes chopping down, bringing the flood waters to Egypt and the Sudan every year when, when the great snows melt and the, you know, the rivers fill with water and come rushing down. They're chalk and cheese, really, those two rivers. Chalk and cheese, white and blue. Joanne, I was yeah. really, uh, I was impressed uh, as you were on this ferry in what seemed like the middle of nowhere and somebody recognized you from your role as a <laughs> Bond girl on Her Majesty's I Secret know. Service. I was wondering, you traveled 4,000 yeah. miles on the Nile and you've got a yeah. Bond girl <laughs> history with your TV and movie career. Just pretend you're going to write a, a James Bond uh, bit. Where on the Nile yeah. would you write a little James Bond bit? It would start almost exactly where that kind person recognized me. When you've You've left the great sophistication and kind of glamorous ancient history of Egypt, the charted area, and suddenly you've crossed Lake Nasser, mm. 
and you're chopping across Lake Nasser towards the tiny jetty into the Sudan, which is the largest African country by far, and it's just a little jetty. And I think that's exactly where James Bond Perfect. would be waiting, with his eyes narrowed and his hand on, on the Beretta tucked into his belt. Perfect. And there in the distance, in a tank, would be sitting <laughs> Blofeld, I think. <laughs> I love it. And you're right, because it is quite a contrast. You come into, you know, Egypt, and there's resorts, and there's the Aswan Dam, and there's all the this great, grandiose stuff at Luxor. And then you get to the Sudan, which is, I think it's about as big as the United States, but it's only got maybe 100 miles of paved road. And yeah. the welcome is this bare basic concrete jetty. Tiny little jetty, yeah. And, and then And James great Bond dusty <laughs> sandy hills and, oh, I mean, pretty thrilling, really. Okay, now you had, well, let's just kind of go through the itinerary. You start in Egypt and you started in Alexandria. What was your take on yeah. Alexandria, the great Egyptian Mediterranean oh, port? Special, special. I'd been to Cairo before, but I'd never been to Alexandria. So it was a great, great thrill to come to a place so full of history. So many of the grandest names in history have been there have lived there, belonged there. It reads like a sort of list of half-god, half-men, you know? And it has this wonderful sort of um, early 20th century history, too, with Art Deco buildings and the, and the intrigue between the wars. Amazing to think, like, four million people live in Alexandria now. I know. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And the feeling that it is a Mediterranean city, okay? Yeah. It's right on the north of North Africa, but it's Mediterranean, and it's got that slightly Mediterranean feel, which disappears almost at once you catch the train and begin to move into the great open farmlands which lead you into Cairo, because by then suddenly you're in an Arab, you're in an Egyptian country. But Alexandria's got a feeling that you're kind of flirting with Nice, you know? You're right. It's got that flavor of the Mediterranean. And then mm. you, you lose that when you go to Cairo, just three hours away by train or something. What yeah. was your take on Cairo? I adore it. I mean, it, it is colossal. It's got 18 million people in it. It's phenomenally large. The river is immense at that point, very, very wide, very sleepy, crisscrossed by bridges. Egypt is so full of splendors and wonders. But I think the strangest thing is, is to realize that the Nile used to flow directly underneath mm -hmm. the Great Pyramids. And now, of course, it's pushed right back and it's just a little thin ribbon and all that land, which was great river and empty land, is now crowded up, jostle, 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 the world <laughs> growing, pushing up, getting closer and closer to the Great Pyramids. Joanna, it's so fun to hear your experiences in Egypt. I was there also. It was just before their political upheaval turned deadly. And and while I was there, I noticed the pyramids, they seemed to draw a line in the sand for Cairo. Maybe you felt this too, but it was almost as if they were saying, this is as far as you can spread your massive city. And it was so much fun to watch you on your camel, clip-clopping your way right up to the pyramids. It's something I've always wanted to do. Going from the outskirts of Cairo, and you were on a camel named Charlie Brown. And then as soon as you approached the pyramids, I don't know about you, but I found that you don't even know there's a city of 18 million people just behind you. It's just you and the camel, and it's like you're in a whole other world from 4,000 years ago. Well, it's the most strange feeling. I think what it is is I think they've kind of made, I don't think national park's the right word, but I think they've sort of stopped it and said, this is as far as we go. Added to which, the land they've built on was land that used to be flooded every year by the Nile when, when the great rains came and the, the snows melted. Joanna, you seem to have a, a nice relationship with your camel, Charlie Brown, right? Charlie Brown is the most beautiful creature. I spoke very low and I spoke in a very deep voice. Animals quite, they don't like shrill noises. And I spoke very softly to Charlie and I told him how handsome he was. And he kissed me with his whiskery, whiskery face. Mm -hmm. And then he was very kind to me and his owner said he really likes you. Mm. And so I felt extremely happy with him, even when I had to cross a motorway wreck. 
And I thought, you know, sail before steam. I hope they'll stop. And indeed, the cars <laughs> all quietly came to a halt as we went on the great ships of the desert crossing across these motorways. You know, you, you, you mentioned they, they fold up like a leatherman. And I just think that yes. is the greatest description. I mean, most of us know what a <laughs> leatherman is, that, that multifaceted tool we can stick in our tool belt or in our pocket. And That's then you right. showed it and the camel collapses. Uh, describe how that works. Just beautiful. They sort of fold up. They go down the front first and their great beautiful knees buckle up under them. Then the back legs snap up and suddenly they're after a huge jolt, and at one point you're 45 degrees to the ground if you're sitting on the, on the saddle, and then suddenly you're back to normal again, mm. and you just swing your leg over and can slip down. Now, you took the night train from Cairo down to Luxor, and then yeah. you got in the boat and sailed to, uh, and I love the approach you had to Aswan, and then, and then from there, Abu Simbel. Can you talk a little bit about that stretch of the Nile? Well, the, the train journey was lovely, but it was a sort of overnight train, and that lovely impatience you have when you're traveling in the darkness, and you can't really see what, what it's like. You get the odd glimpse of, of the river, but you couldn't really see where you were. And then suddenly arriving at Luxor the next morning with all the glories of that mm. phenomenal place. I mean, dear people listening, if you haven't been to Luxor, save up every penny you've got mm-hmm. and get up there, get to Egypt, and somehow get to Luxor because oh, you won't yeah. be disappointed. We're cruising down the Nile River, the lifeline of civilizations for thousands of years with Joanna Lumley. American audiences probably know her best for her role as Patsy Stone on the hit Britcom Absolutely Fabulous. A DVD set of Joanna Lumley's Nile has recently been released in the U.S. by Athena. Don't you rather love that possessive way I've called it my Nile, Joanna Lumley's Lumley's Nile? Nile. (laughs) Well, I, you know, you are such an elegant person, and at the same time, from watching your video, it just seemed like you were a beautiful traveler as as well. And there's that very interesting mix. You're surrounded by people sleeping on the deck, literally, and you're mm. sitting there being very thoughtful and poetic and composed. Describe what it was like to sail across this giant Lake Nasser. That's the largest man-made lake in the world, I understand, past where the Nile backs up after the Aswan Dam, which was built in 1970 to control the floods uh, that, that really bring life to, to Egypt. Rick, it's like an inland sea. It really is. I mean, the scale of that mighty place is just enormous. Half the time, you can't see the other side of it. Wow. So when we when we call it Lake Nasa, it's kind of sea Nasa, really. It's immense. And setting off in the darkness in a really rattling old tin tub of a ship, crammed with people, 500 people crammed on, with all their goods and chattels, everything that people were bringing down from Egypt into the Sudan to bring back to their families with stuff that they'd bought and having having worked abroad and so on, bringing treats to their families. And it was stiflingly hot downstairs mm. where you ate the favourite food there, which is called ful, <laughs> F-O-U-L, which is beans. It's like baked beans, but without the tomato sauce. They're very delicious, slightly larger white beans, and they're, they're actually a good and nourishing meal. And as I'm a vegetarian, they suited me down to the ground. But it was so hot downstairs, I thought, I might just go up and sit on the deck for a bit. Well... Everybody had the same idea. So everybody in the world was sleeping on the deck with their blankets out and their mats, sometimes a little transistor radio playing, lots of men, some saying their prayers. And I found a little tiny strip which had several cockroaches running about (laughs) in it. And I thought if I just hunker down here, I can probably have a calm night, put my kit bag under my head and shoulders. And it was so hot you didn't need a cover. Just lay down there and actually it was lovely. Joanna, you... You look like a movie star when you're traveling through Egypt, even if you're wearing your your, uh, your khakis and so on. How was it, surrounded by working-class men on this working-class boat, sleeping on the decks, surrounded by 50 men? I mean, it's a man's world. You're not just a woman. You're this stately, 
woman from the rich world, did you feel comfortable? They're very respectful. They're extremely respectful people. And because I respect them, so I always keep, for instance, in an Islamic country, you always keep yourself covered up if you're a woman. Mm -hmm. So you don't have naked arms and legs mm -hmm. and things. And you don't have a, a dipping front. You know, you keep yourself covered mm -hmm. and always have a scarf ready to cover your hair if, if mm -hmm. people would rather it was that way. It's the easiest way of traveling. And if you're courteous to them and remember to say shukran and thank you and all the nice polite words... And they can tell by your demeanor that you respect them and are so proud to be in their country and happy to be there. And they're always courteous back again. But remember, I've traveled. I've, I'm a traveler. And we were traveling light. There are only six of us on these things. There's a couple of cameramen, sound recordist, the director, the producer, and me. Mm -hmm. And then we, you meet up with your fixer, your dragoman, your interpreter, as it were, in each place that you go to, who right. can speak the local language and knows how to sort things out. But we travel so light, so I carry all my clothes rolled up in bags yeah. and stick on my makeup by candlelight and things, and it's fine. The point is you can be elegant and uh, presentable for TV, you know. At the same time, you can be very modest and respectful of the local uh, sensibilities. That's right. And I think you, you nailed it. It was really impressive. I'm so pleased. You had an adventure with some crocodiles. Tell us, if that must have been a fun part of your adventure. Well, meeting somebody, first of all, meeting somebody who'd been damaged by a crocodile. We were determined in this film. The Nile crocodile is one of the most famous animals on earth. It's the one that Tarzan wrestled with in the rivers. You know, they grow to be, I don't know, 18 foot long, absolutely unbelievably huge. And we had to try to find Nile crocodiles for our film because we thought it would be so nice. Well, we looked and looked in Egypt and in the Sudan and we couldn't find anything. Mm. We could see footprints. We could see this and that. I saw an old man who'd been badly injured by a crocodile. He told me the story with an old crocodile skeleton. But it wasn't until we reached Uganda where we saw them basking in all their majestic glory. I love them, Rick. I hate it. I'm sorry to say this. I don't like people killing them mm -hmm. just so they can have a crocodile bag. Mm -hmm. These are great creatures who've been roaming the earth for four million years, mm. far longer than we've been around. Mm -hmm. And they are prehistoric, and they have as much right to be here as we do. Anyway, to see them keeping their mouths wide open to get let the cool air mm. flow into their bodies and to see them slipping with a slight bubble from the nostril into the, oh. into the river and then just slip, 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 and you think, ooh, I'll keep my hand out of the water. Joanna, you also talked vividly about uh, going through the Nubian desert and then visiting uh, the pyramids of the black pharaohs. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, this is extraordinary. There are more pyramids outside Egypt in the Sudan than there are inside Egypt. These are differently shaped ones, and where we were in Karima, one of the holiest and most extraordinary little sort of respected townships on the edge of the Nile, right out in the desert, right out in the Nubian desert, where the holy mountain Jebel Barker is. And Karima was the capital of the whole region. From Karima ran the whole of this great Egyptian mm. empire. All the pharaohs came from that region and were black, Sudanese, beautiful people who were pharaohs for just generations. And they seem to have been sort of left out of it because their people were buried back in Karima in the Sudan. And I went down into a couple of the tombs which haven't been plundered, but which are, honestly, you can just you just walk across the desert to them. Mm. There's no, you know, entrance fee and there are no guards. There's nothing. The big clanging gate and an old man called Mohammed who lets you in. With torchlight, you can see the beauty of these burial chambers. We went to a queen's burial chamber with stars on the sky and a painting of her as a corpse. And then on the other side... Her smelling the ankh, which I will spell A-N-K-H if people mm -hmm. want to look it up, that beautiful symbol which became a hippie symbol in the 60s mm -hmm. of eternal life, mm -hmm. like a kind of loop with a cross across it. The god holds it to the queen's nose and suddenly there was a painting of her 
reinvigorated, life brought back to her. So they believed in life after death as well. Extraordinary. Would these be Nubians? These are Nubians, yeah. It is fascinating to think that pharaohs were from Nubia and they were Nubian. Today, Nubians are are darker-skinned minority in Egypt anyways, and they have traditional villages. But if you want to see the idyllic, you know, time-past village life on the Nile... Apparently, uh, the Nubian villages are really something. And then, and then you climbed with the Nubians up their holy mountain. Up to the holy mountain, Jabal Barka. And it was just fantastic. Every Friday on the Muslim holy day, they climb up there. And there was a couple of young newlyweds. When you get married, mm. it's one of the things you do. You climb the mountain and watch the sunset from up there. Mm. There was such a lovely chitter-chattering of little children who, of course, run straight up it. And I was with the old village elder who'd looked after me. And we went up hand in hand, puffing and panting. He said rather charmingly, when I get to 60, I, I shall be feel that I'm climbing the mountain. I didn't say to him, I'm 63 already. <laughs> oh, man. I was so inspired by that whole... Uh, it must have oh. been early in the morning or late at night when you're... you're no, climbing. it was late at night. It was the sun setting, Rick. It was, it was a, just a truly, <laughs> honestly, transcendental feeling. Was crossing borders pretty straightforward? Did you have reservations yes. and visas and so on? Or did you just show you, up well, and we talk were. your way through? No, no, no. We were visaed up to the nostrils. We'd got every kind of pass and permit and photograph and extra pieces of paper. And, of course, remember, we're carrying a lot of camera equipment. And did it all work because you did did all your due uh, diligence? Did you pretty much skip right through the borders? Well, skip might be a bit of an (laughs) an enchanting word to use. But we got through and there was no problems. The only only time we had a problem, funnily enough, was in Uganda, Mm. where for some unbelievable reason, I'd left my yellow fever certificate behind. Mm. And they brought out of a ghastly, what seemed to be a rusty old box, a vast needle and said, we will inject you here. And I went, holy smoke, please don't do that. So we phoned back and we had mine found and faxed through, but that was a bit of a delay. And I thought, never, ever travel without your vaccination. I didn't know they still need that. You still need the vaccination card yeah. for these countries. Yeah, you do. And if you don't have it, they bring out the well-used needle. and uh... you, They do, <laughs> or, or, you're, or you're not allowed in. Joanna, Lake Nasser is the biggest lake in the world, but it's man-made and it, it feels like a reservoir in a lot of ways. How does Lake Victoria differ? Oh, it's staggering. Because I think Lake Victoria would be more that Eden feel. I think it's got that Eden feel because it is Lake Nasser, remember, is man-made and therefore... Although some bits grow a little bit now on the on the edges, it's largely within the desert. It's a reservoir in the middle of a desert, with the great temple of Abu Simbel rising, mm. you know, saved from the from the depths to be put up there. But Lake Victoria is oh, it's kind of paradise. It, you've got everything. You've got every kind of animal on God's earth: butterflies and flowers and birds that you can't believe. Mm. The beauty of it. There's the calm, sweet feeling that you can just swim in it, that you can fish in it, you can laze on it, you can sit in a houseboat, you can travel on it. I don't know. There's something wonderful about Lake Victoria. But you see, the great Victorians came. Nobody could follow the Nile. This is the thing about it, Rick. In the old days, people traveled down. The Egyptians, the Greeks, everybody was looking for the source of the Nile. So they all came down through Egypt into the Sudan. That's where the Nile is met by this colossal 14-mile-deep swamp called the Sud, S-U-D-D. Photographed in the air, it looks like something out of from outer space. You just can't fathom how wide it is, made of papyrus islands which float and tiny, Mm -hmm. weird little things. It's a bed of mosquitoes. It's staggeringly beautiful and absolutely lethal. Mm. And the river seems to lose its way, and it just becomes this colossal... uh, on a scale that you a can't lot of the, I understand a lot of the actual bulk of the Nile or the flow of the Nile actually evaporates there sometimes. Evaporates Because there. it's so spread And dissipates out. itself there. Right. But then somehow, having flowed north from the Sudan into mm-hmm. that, from southern Sudan into that, in northern Sudan, 
Somehow it collects itself, and at the end, it combs its hair sideways, <laughs> puts on its jacket again, comes out and says, I'm the Nile. The mighty Nile. <laughs> you know, Joanna, there's a lot of concern about the safety of women or how, how women are welcomed in Muslim countries that, that you traveled through here. What was your take, uh, being a woman in these countries? What was the vibe? Uh, how was your reception? Immensely respectful. I mean, depending on it, what's how religious people are, you'll find people in cities are friendly and shake hands. Sometimes the more religious Muslims won't, it's discourteous to touch a woman's hand. Women mm-hmm. can greet each other. So right. I had lots of hugs from grannies and young girls mm-hmm. and young women and things like that. But if you learn these things and always look around and always err on the side of modesty, mm-hmm. you know, behave properly, don't be bold, you know, don't right. be cheeky, don't be sort of... Right. Lippy, don't behave in a Western way because that's not how it is out there. So leave your shorts behind and your sleeveless blouses. Leave them behind. Joanna, the culmination of this long trip, 4,000 miles from the Mediterranean, was actually getting to whatever you determined the source of the Nile was, the longest tributary coming into Lake Victoria before the mighty Nile heads out of Lake Victoria. Tell us just that last little triumph. What was it like to find what you considered the source of the Nile? Well, it was extraordinary. The three men who determined that this was the longest source of the Nile are called, their nickname is the Three Macs, because they're three New Zealanders who all have Scottish names, Maclay, McKellum, Mackenzie, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. They were absolutely fantastic, and they had sorted out and sourced it and done it. And so Cam Maclay decided to lead us inland and upriver, up to the final, final bit. I think we thought this will be a little bit of a stroll in the park. I think we thought it might be a path by a sweet mountain stream, and we'd film it in five minutes and sit down and have a picnic. <laughs> well, it turned out to be a fight through the most hellish primeval jungle you've ever come across. You had hip boots Fast on, didn't you? trees. We couldn't climb half the trees that had tumbled <laughs> down. We were in swamp and mud up to our knees, sucking the boots off. We were walking through soldier ants, which we couldn't film because the cameraman dropped the camera screaming with us as we were swarmed over by biting soldier ants. I tore off my jacket and just flung it into the undergrowth it was crawling with ants wow. they crept up in my hair boot I mean, sucking we were mud bitten. oh boot sucking mud but then at the end and having taken a couple of false turns so we were virtually on our knees suddenly in a little glade in a little grove there was a little sweet homemade sign tapped in rather like something in Winnie the Pooh which just said this is the longest source of the Nile and there it was a tiny tiny trickle coming out of the ground at about we were at about 8,000 feet this little tiny bit of river, well, river, I mean, if you'd poured it out of a teacup, <laughs> it would have been more than what, what was coming out of the ground there, Rick. Oh. But the thrill of standing there at the source of the and having been at exactly the other end as it tipped itself into the, oh. into the Mediterranean. Oh, yeah. And having traveled all the way from Rosetta, the town where the Nile hits the Mediterranean, yes. you yes. did the whole thing. And you captured it thing. on film and you're sharing it with us. Joanna Lumley, your new DVD or your DVD of your experience is now available in the United States. It's Joanna Lumley's Nile. Thank you very much for sharing this beautiful adventure. Thank you so much, Rick. And as Patsy would say, cheers, sweetie. Thanks a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.